really is a blessing and an honor um, to uh, really have our children uh, here with us uh, in church. Uh, it's a good thing, it's a great thing, something we cherish here as a church. Uh, and just even seeing them read God's word, um, just a testament to his faithfulness every time uh, we have had that opportunity. So we thank God for that. Uh, and we celebrate together right today, as we mentioned, um, that great good news, right? That, that we have one more to add to the group as we seek to continue to um, disciple them, care for them, and, and teach the gospel to them. So, so grateful to that, to, to God for that. So here we are. Uh, we are at the end, not the end of everything, but just the end of this series within a series. Uh, we come to the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. It's been quite a journey these past few weeks. We've uh, seen the structure of the prayer. We've talked about the, the meaning and the influence of the prayer in our lives, what it means for how we pray and how we live. Uh, we've gone through these past few weeks looking at the six petitions that are laid out before us by our Lord Jesus in, here in this prayer. And now we come to something of a, uh, a conclusion for the prayer, a, uh, a summary, an ending, if you will. And that is, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, if you spent any time uh, in church growing up, and spent any time with this familiarity in this prayer, uh, you would know that this is how, if you learned it and recited it growing up, you would know this is how we conclude the prayer. This is the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, you will see, though, in, in many translations, that you will find this in some translations, that in many translations, you will not see this closing in the prayer. You might actually have a little footnote in there that will guide you to uh, some additional information that might be helpful. And the thinking is that this conclusion, this ending, what some would call a doxology, and that word doxology just means an expression of praise to God, oftentimes in the church through song, but that's all doxology means, an expression of praise. Um, the thinking is that this doxology uh, was not actually part of the Lord's Prayer as our Lord Jesus um, stated it, as we have it here in Matthew. What we see is that the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew uh, do not have this conclusion there. What we find, though, is very early on in the first or second century that the church began to recite this prayer and pray this prayer and conclude this prayer with this doxology. For yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. And the thinking here is this actually makes sense because in the Jewish custom, their, their, their custom was for their daily prayers to always end them with some sort of brief doxology, expression of praise. So the thinking is early on in the Christian church, as the church began to recite this prayer, study this prayer, learn this prayer, 
uh, that they added this statement there. Now, I think this makes sense, this explanation, this understanding for a few reasons. One, um, from a literary point of view, you can kind of see why maybe this doxology is added in there. Um, when we look at the previous petition, where does it end? It ends with this discussion of the evil one. Uh, it seems maybe a little odd, maybe or cold, right, to, to end the prayer in that sort of way. But we know that when it comes to the text of the Bible, it's not decided by our, by someone's feelings or appropriateness, right? It's really by the evidence. And the evidence seems to show us that this doxology uh, was not necessarily part of the original Lord's Prayer that came from our Lord Jesus's lips. But we shouldn't think that just because that is the case that it was wrong for the early church to, uh, to add this. Because really what you have in this doxology, in this summary statement, is the church's response to what it means to pray this prayer and understand this prayer and live out this prayer. It was really the early church's song of praise at the end of the prayer. See, we know that the Lord's Prayer is an outline, a model of what our prayers should contain. And to me, there's nothing wrong with additional praise or doxology in keeping with the spirit of the prayer, as long as we understand that most likely um, that, that Jesus did not include this in, in the original. But if you think about that statement, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. There are variations of that found all throughout Scripture. The Old Testament contains what many think is perhaps the model from which this um, doxology is condensed. You actually see it in, in 1 Chronicles 29. A really fascinating story in 1 Chronicles 29. What you see there is King David gives instructions to the people of Israel to bring together offerings for the temple. To bring together offerings to actually construct the temple. David gives instructions to the people to bring this together. And the people did. They listened. And they brought together this great offering and in the midst of the people with this great offering gathered David stands before the people and what does he do he doesn't praise the people that bring this offering in 1st Chronicles 29 10 and 11 David actually lifts his eyes to the Lord and says, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. Sounds very similar. In the New Testament, 
There are so many examples of phrases that echo this sentiment we have here in the Lord's Prayer. If you look at Revelation chapter 5, 13, it says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So we see that this doxology for the Lord's Prayer is scriptural in its content. It's founded and rooted in the scripture. That this doxology is actually a response. It's the church's proper response to the Lord's prayer. It's the declaration of joy for someone who has truly prayed that prayer, who has understood it and prayed it. That we come to the end of these petitions and we say, for yours is the kingdom, Lord. Yours is the power, God. Yours is the glory forever. Amen. It's a model of the heart's response to someone who truly enters into the Lord's it's really a song of the heart that prays according to the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. So there's three, as you can see, there's three elements, three parts to this uh, doxology, if you will. And we'll take a look at those three parts together. The first is that this doxology declares that the kingdom is God's. It declares the kingdom to be God's. Yours is the kingdom. This lines up perfectly with our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, which is what? King and kingdom. In saying yours is the kingdom, it is a fundamental underlying meaning that what? You can, if you have a kingdom, you must have a king. So really this is just meaning and saying God is king. And specifically in the Jewish understanding, this sort of statement, yours is the kingdom, is saying, you are king forever. And really, that truth is constantly repeated throughout Scripture again and again and again, that idea. When we pray, when we say, yours is the kingdom, we are joyfully affirming the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty meaning his rule or reign over creation. When we say this, when we pray this, pray this, it's affirming that he is all powerful. And this actually links into the next part of the doxology. When we pray this, when we say this, it affirms that he is all knowing it's fascinating when you begin to think about God and his attributes that God, think about this for a second, God knows instantly and effortlessly all things. Instantly, effortlessly, he knows all. All causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all feelings, all desires, every honored secret, 
all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell, all of it. And because God knows all things perfectly, he, he knows not one thing any better than any other thing, but he knows them all equally well. God never wonders about anything. This phrase, yours is the kingdom, it also affirms that God is absolutely free. Beyond human experience, beyond human understanding. When you think about our earthly analogies that try to capture this, they, they fall short. When we try to describe some, a human being as free, there's a phrase that says, uh, well, you know, free as a bird. Well, if you apply just a little bit of knowledge to that, you say that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Think about what a bird's dealing with, predators, food supplies, these natural fears, these birds are in bondage. Really, a man is no more free than a, than a bird. In fact, less so because of what? Because of sin. But when you think about God, only God is free. He can do what he pleases, when he pleases, as he pleases, because he is king. But when we say yours is the kingdom, it doesn't just only affirm his sovereign kingship. It also declares that he is king of this world, albeit fallen, rebellious, but the world would have much trouble believing that. Everywhere one might look, it appears that, it appears as what? Only the strong prevail. It appears that only those who are nasty or wicked prevail. But Jesus, Jesus turns this on its head. When you think of that picture of Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and the mutilated image of Christ that stood before him, what was going through Pilate's mind? In his mind, what? The power of Rome stood with him. And this Jesus that stood before him was an unfortunate victim of time and place. Wrong place, wrong time. But what was the actual circumstance? The truth was that Pilate with all the power of Rome behind him, was actually the captive one. And that Jesus, who stood before him, was the king, the only free one. And if you do not see Christ as king and have not experienced the kingdom, it's because you are standing in the wrong place. Um, one of the amazing things about the building that we're in right now is some of this stained glass. 
What's fascinating about it is if you go and you stand outside and you looked at it, um, you would look at it and think, is it, is it dirty? Is it, is something wrong with it? Is it dulled out? But see, you're seeing it from the wrong perspective. The moment you enter in and you come and look, you see the shining, you see the, the imagery, you see the color in its vibrancy. The mystery of God's kingdom, you can really only see it from the inside. And from within, what do we joyously declare? Yours is the kingdom. Not mine is the kingdom. That's the, that's the mantra of the world. The world will stand on that. But we say yours is the kingdom. And know that it is coming and that we will all see it. Even those who are outside, when Jesus Christ returns, will know that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And hear me this morning, this realization should make the difference in how we live. We believe that he is in control, that we will answer to him. And this belief, it, it influences everything. That we must live as if God is king and that his kingdom is already present and is coming. Yours is the kingdom. The second part of this doxology declares that power is God's. Yours is the power. It's interesting, we've talked about sovereignty, right? God's rule and reign over creation. God's sovereignty and his omnipotence or his all-powerfulness, they go together. You can't divorce them. They coexist together. In order to reign, think about it for a second. In order to reign, God must have power. And in order to reign sovereignly, what kind of power must he have? All power. And this idea of God's omnipotence to, to someone that if maybe grew up in church, if you've got some familiarity with the Bible, you've heard that phrase, the omnipotence of God. It should be evident, but there are even corners of what some would call Christianity that in order to deal with some of the more difficult issues and challenges regarding faith, will say, yes, God indeed is all loving, but may concede that he is not all-powerful. Why? Well, to say that, okay, well, now I can believe in a more realistic God. Now, now I can wrap my brain around it. What is really being done when that happens? That is molding God into our own image. And that is nothing new. But what's the problem? It's not what the scriptures say. 
It's not what God's word says. In Psalm 62, 11, one thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong. In the Old Testament, you might have heard this phrase that God is referred to as Almighty. The Lord, Almighty. Numerous, numerous, numerous times in the Old Testament you will see that. And yet that word, Almighty, is never used once for an angel or for a human being. Only for God, Lord Almighty. You come into the New Testament, this idea is equally consistent. It's equally clear. As Cam was kind enough to read for us from Colossians about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. For by him all things were created. All things were created by him and for him. In him all things hold together. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it reads, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. In Revelation 19, 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord... God Almighty reigns. Since God is omnipotent, He can do anything as easily as anything else. Amazing. All that He does without effort. We touched on this a bit back when we were in the Lord's Prayer and talked about how when we don't offer up our some of our prayers that we think are too small for God, we're actually betraying an understanding of God's power that is incorrect, right? You say, well, you know, God might not have time for, for this little thing that I'm saying. No. All-powerful. He does everything that he does without breaking a sweat. There's no sweat to be broken. He has unlimited Right? So when we pray, yours is the power. What are we declaring? We're declaring you can do anything. And think about it for a second with me. If we don't believe this, what, what reason do we have to pray? exercise in futility. All of the six petitions that we looked at in the Lord's Prayer require an omnipotent God. Yours is the power. If we truly believe that, what does it 
bring about in our lives? What should it bring about in our lives? It should bring about a profound dependence on him. What does Jesus say in John 15, 5? Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's profoundly true. But for a moment, consider the converse with me, because that is true as well. With God, we can do great things. Just this morning, we get here, we get here a little bit early every morning, right? There's there's kind of a short turnover between the previous church and we have to come in. So we're moving things and we're, we're doing things. And without fail, Kinsley, my daughter, wants to help. Right on cue, she will say, Dad, can I help you? Dad, can I help you? And it's, it's a little tough because she's so genuine in wanting to help, but you know, it's hard for her not to be in the way, too. But just this morning, with this table, with the Lord's table, we moved it from up there to down here. My son Silas was carrying it on the other end. And, and here we have Kinsley saying, let, let, me, let me help you. So there she is, me and Silas holding the table at one end and her holding it in the middle. Uh, and, and we're bringing it down and we place it over here. So I told her that she could help. What is her feeling of this situation? How does she look at it? What does she think? Well, I'm carrying this table. Look at me. This humongous table, four times my size. Look, I'm carrying this down here. That's what she's thinking. But anybody that's looking at that picture, what do they, what do they see and know? It's my arms that's propelling this table down there. And when you look at that picture for me for a second, it is a parable of what a soul can do when it depends upon God. God's hand. God's hand propels us through life, even through storms, even through hard times, and accomplishes great things for his glory. Yours is the power. All power is yours. So what? We are dependent on you, God. That is the reflex of a heart that knows the reality of the Lord's prayer. And we come to the final portion of this doxology. It declares the glory to be God's. Yours is the glory forever. Now, when we think about God's glory, I think there are two aspects to it that we can think about. The first is about the essence of God's existence, the, the splendor of his existence in unapproachable light. Something like a brightness that no mere mortal can bear. When you think about the glory 
of which Moses saw as just an afterglow, as God covered him with his hand and his glory passed by. That, that sort of idea. That glory that momentarily flowed through Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, when his face was shining like the sun, his clothing became white with light. We think of God's glory in that sense. But secondly, we also can think of glory when it comes to God in terms of honor. Honor. And both of those aspects of glory, they infinitely belong to God. When we say yours is the glory, we're shouting out that all the splendor, all the honor belongs to God. And this idea is intensified by the word that is put there at the end, which is what? Forever. 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 How long is forever? You think of a, a mother waiting for their child to come. Nine months feels like forever, right? When you think about your own life, and you think about the days of your life, the breath of your days, maybe 70, maybe 80, and, then, and yet the breath of your life is not even a minuscule speck of eternity. We joyfully declare in faith that yours is the glory forever. For it will be God's always. And, and I grant you, as hard as it is to understand eternity, to, to, to begin to even wrap your brain around what it means and, and what it looks like and, and what it, the essence of it, just as hard, even more hard, is to think that within that eternity, we will share in the glory of God. We, citizens of the kingdom, we, Christ has redeemed. We, his children who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We, who are trusting in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. We will share in that glory for eternity. As we come to, to close our sermon portion this morning, when you begin to think about that, as you begin to tap into a sliver of what that means for us to share in the glory of God through eternity, as you begin to just tap into a small piece of that, as you begin to tap into the hope of what that means, 
just a little bit, you cannot help but be dumbfounded and aching with awe and wonder. So what is our response to that sort of idea that we will share in the glory of God for eternity? What is our response to that idea, that hope of glory, when now, in our lives right now, we are going through, you may be going through some dark time. You might be going through some deep difficulty. You may be going through some seeds of uncertainty. You might be going through some troubles and trials and tribulations and pains and sufferings. What should our response be? Be in the midst of all that about this hope of glory. I think our response can only be like that of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. As we remember that His is the glory, we are called to deny our fixations on material things to seek after the things that are eternal. The proper reflex of the heart that prays the Lord's Prayer is to declare what? Yours is the glory forever. And then to say what? Amen. Amen. In the Hebrew understanding, the way of saying amen is to say what? Let it be so. So be it. But in this context, I think it means even more. Amen. It is a confident expression that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And it will indeed be so. It is a word of faith and conviction. So as we come now, we come to this ending here of the Lord's Prayer. What will your response be? As you rightly pray the prayer, as you rightly live out the prayer, what will your expression be? Will it be a confident expression of faith? The kingdom, it's not mine, it's yours. The power, it's not mine, it's yours. The glory is not mine, it's yours. But in your grace, you will share your glory with me in eternity. So we say, Amen. In faith and conviction. Yours is the kingdom.